Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the finance minister confirms a date for the federal budget. Our government was re-elected on a commitment to grow our economy, make life more affordable, and to continue building a Canada where nobody gets left behind. That is exactly what we are doing, and that is what we're going to continue to do in the budget that I will present to this House on April 7, 2022. Reaction to the Liberals' plan to drastically cut greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. I am highly skeptical that they've done the complicated analysis to see what the effect of this is going to have on the Canadian economy and of course on Canadian taxpayers. And Ukraine floats the idea of naming Canada as a potential security guarantor as talks with Russia continue. The bottom line is Canada will continue to be there uh, to support Ukraine and stand against Russia uh, every step of the way. We're in talks with allies and partners in NATO and elsewhere about how the best path forward is on that. It's Wednesday, March 30th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by longtime political writer and broadcaster, Dan Legere. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Mark. So we have a date for the federal budget. It's Thursday, April the 7th, next Thursday, in fact, a uh, week tomorrow. So uh, what do you expect? And I'll just make the the side comment that um, it's, it's interesting. Budgets used to be in February or March. Now they're in early April. I know the circumstances are... Are different now, and and uh, but this this one's going to be uh, presented. Uh, obviously, it's been prepared for some time, but we're hearing about it on somewhat short notice. So everyone will will scramble now to make their predictions about what's likely to be in next week's budget. <laughs> well, the good thing about it is that uh, those predictions only have to be wrong for one week, I guess. But uh, <laughs> very true. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the, there's so much weird old. Uh, vestiges of past practice in Canadian federal budgeting, you know, the secrecy, so-called, and, and, you know, they're delivered after the market closes and and all this sort of stuff, when in fact, most stuff that happens uh, in a budget is leaked in advance and is, you know, is trial tested and road tested. And, uh, you know, uh, granted, the details and the exact numbers are never really known until the budget is presented. Uh, but there's still a lot of this old-fashioned, uh, you know, mystery and suspense and everything like that over what really should be a normal part of the parliamentary and government process. Um, you know, the secrecy is just getting in the way, I think, at this uh, stage of the game. So uh, anyway, yeah, next next uh, Thursday and uh, one day, I guess, for the leaders to argue over it before Parliament goes on a break, too. So that's yeah. another unusual factor. Yeah, and, and let's talk about what direction might be signaled because I, I agree with you that the sort of the details of the budget, the ins and outs, the the numbers, and all of that, uh, uh, you know, there probably won't be tons of surprises. But um, there's we've just been through this unprecedented period of of uh, government spending on the pandemic, and it's raised for some people many alarm bells about whether. We're uh, we're creating massive deficits and debt that that are never going to be resolved. Uh, there's there's some people saying we should be getting that under control. Others are saying we need to keep spending uh, because of the pandemic and its after effects, and because of important social programs like dental care and pharmacare. So, what do you think there will be a tone that is set by this budget? 
Well, I, I don't think anyone is going to suddenly accuse the Liberal government uh, of being tight-fisted or, you know, uh, cheap. Uh, they're going to spend. But I, I think Minister Freeland said already that the federal deficit is going to decline quite drastically over the next few years as that pandemic spending gets weeded out down to the bare essentials. Hopefully, uh, it is passing, the pandemic, I mean, hopefully it is passing and that uh, this type of really broad spending won't be required for too many years. Um, but uh, I think uh, there's, there is a lot of legitimate concern over the size of the federal deficit, the inflationary effect that it has on the economy. We are seeing inflation in our daily lives. Uh, I put some gas in the car the other day and almost fainted at the pump. <laughs> so, you know, I, I know uh, there is a lot of pressure out there, but I do think that the, the federal uh, government is looking uh, is planning to to reduce the deficit quite you know seriously over the next few years. So we'll see. Now there is this new pressure that's arisen, which is the NDP uh, agreement to support the Liberal government, and I'm sure the NDP, uh, if it's going to stick to its guns on its normal way of seeing the world, will also want uh, spending in areas that uh, that it's interested in too. So this is the balance. But that's why we pay finance ministers the big bucks. All right. Speaking of reductions over the next few years, um, Canada has a new official plan for meeting uh, greenhouse gas reduction uh, emissions, uh, reductions targets for 2030. Um, this is all part of the new climate accountability legislation. The prime minister made the announcement yesterday um, what what do you think about this and the reaction to it so far? Because obviously with, with any decision like this, there's a lot at stake, uh, not just for the future of the planet, but for the future of the Canadian economy. Right. Well, this is a massive challenge uh, for the next number of years for Canada, Mark, obviously. And uh, I think the fact that the prime minister uh, himself has to announce these things shows how uh, serious and weighty the responsibility is. I mean, there, are, uh, you know, it is the plan. The the goals were set out, so now there are some meat on the bones of the plan. And uh, you know, there's also spending that goes along with it. We we're just talking about that. There's another nine billion uh, that was uh, promised yesterday, and uh, that will be part of the budget as well. Uh, to nine billion to help industry. Um, start to get ready for the changes. I mean, some of the, you know, emissions reductions should be fairly straightforward. I mean, all the provinces are trying to get out of coal, for instance, already. That's that's in place, or the plans are in place, I should say. Um, uh, but again, there is going to be uh, resistance and, and, uh, and worry about it, in for particularly oil and gas sector, uh, but also in transportation and some of these other areas that are emission-heavy industries. So um, this is a, a long-term plan. I mean, there, there's so many possible uh, ramifications of it, it, it's hard to spell it out in a, in a fast interview. But it also carries massive political implications as well, because obviously not all parties see it uh, the same way. Um, and while the next few years look like it'll be fairly plain sailing for the Liberals to get this stuff uh, at least uh, put on the books as goals and as and as plans um, with the help of the NDP, I think, uh, you know, if we had a change in government, a lot of this might might change as well. And that is the the uh, 
pothole that always looms in front of every long-term plan. And this is not just a one- or two-year plan. This is multi-decades. Yeah. All right. Finally, Dan, uh, let's talk about the prospect of Canada being a, a potential security guarantor as Ukraine continues to have talks with Russia about the crisis there. Um, it, I find this interesting because uh, I think it can be said we often overestimate Canada's role on the international stage uh, from our perspective within this country. Uh, but maybe here is an instance where Canada can play a very big role. Yes, and this is something uh, unusual and different, uh, this idea of security guarantor nations for Ukraine. Um, I, I think it's an intriguing idea. I mean, Canada would be one of several countries, and, and uh, it appears you know, Poland, Israel, Turkey uh, might be others, even Russia, United States, Britain, Germany, uh, you know, playing a role in trying to restore and rest and uh, maintain stability in uh, Eastern Europe. Because after all, as, as we've all come to realize, Mark, since the Russians went into Ukraine, that uh, this is a broader political and security problem right across the whole of the European continent and perhaps around the world. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know exactly what it means in terms of practical terms. Like, I don't think it means sending soldiers there. Uh, but I do mean, think it probably uh, requires diplomatic presence, economic, uh, an economic role, um, and, and work with other countries um, to get things done. And uh, for better or worse, working with other countries is one of the things that Canada is good at. Uh, as the defense minister, or, or as the foreign minister controversially said the other day. So, um, but in this case, with Ukraine seeking a path to peace, and the Russians apparently trying to find some way to disengage uh, while saving face, this might be one way uh, to approach that. So it, it's, I don't understand it very well yet, but it's an intriguing idea. And I think it's something Canada would be, uh, quite keen to, to undertake in the interest of a broader peace. Yeah. And, and obviously it's, it's a signal that, uh, it's a hopeful signal. It's a small hopeful signal that, that maybe there is a potential resolution here, right? Yes, and it's so hard to tell. I mean, I just feel swamped by misinformation and lies that are coming out of there. Um, and, you know, the Russians are talking about a pause or pulling back or whatever. I don't know that they're doing that for peace reasons or, or for just to time to get more guns and bullets into the area. But uh, and, and there's no reason to trust the Russians whatsoever. So uh, everything has to be done with a high degree of skepticism, as, as uh, Nixon and others used to say, you know, trust but verify. And, um, you know, this is, the, this is the way it has to be done. But I think it's going to take a, a multi-nation, multilateral approach to uh, bringing about a better resolution in Ukraine, one that doesn't have that country dismembered by the Russians and reconquered, um, but one that also allows the Russians to uh, carry on and know that, um, you know, NATO hasn't got any designs on its territory. And, and it's time that that, that message was, was clearly made to the Russians. Yeah. All right. Great stuff, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. That's longtime political writer and broadcaster, Dan Legere. That's going to be a significant support to families right now and into the coming years. 
on top of that, the various uh, income supports and support for families that we continue to work forward are going to be uh, supporting people. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Susan Delacorte argues big government is back and Canadians like it. Delacorte writes, The country's social safety net is in the midst of a major expansion. A child care program that now covers all parts of the country, a dental care plan that will be fully in place by 2025, as well as a pharmacare system still under construction, have all been unveiled since last Tuesday. After two years of a global pandemic, it's hard to argue that government should be getting out of people's lives when state-financed subsidies and vaccines were keeping money in pockets and people out of hospital. And while the need for subsidies will eventually fade away, the idea that government needs to be a force in Canadians' lives has not. In The Ottawa Citizen, Dr. Jasmine Gittay and Dr. Nilly Kaplan-Mirth argue the lack of pharmacare in Canada has been a hard pill to swallow for far too long. They write, A national pharmacare program is not only equitable and moral, but economic. Several studies have shown that investing in a national pharmacare program will actually save money, and a national drug plan will provide more leverage and negotiating power to lower drug prices through bulk purchasing for the whole country. And that doesn't take into account the savings from having a healthier population. People that can afford to take medications and stay out of the hospital will have better health outcomes, saving the costs of emergency or complex medical care. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun argues the Liberal Carbon Plan is magical thinking. The Sun writes, The idea that the measures in the Liberals' latest climate change plan can be achieved by 2030 is absurd. Even using reliable, conventional forms of energy, this plan would cause massive disruption to the Canadian economy. But what's in their plan isn't all that important. What's important to them is they have a plan, so that they can say the federal Conservatives don't have one. The challenge for the next Conservative leader will be to explain to Canadians why this plan doesn't make sense. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister, along with Minister of Crown Indigenous Relations, Mark Miller, will meet with the Chief of Williams Lake First Nation, Council members, elders, residential school survivors, and other members of the community. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh will take part in a discussion with a delegation from the Social Democratic Party of Germany. International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan will host Canada's Together for Learning virtual summit. And Treasury Board President Mona Fortier will make a funding announcement regarding support to survivors of sexual assault and intimate partner violence in Ontario. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Wednesday, March 30th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.